ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. Coming up, one of the worst cases of malicious prosecution in the history of this country. An investigator has to be open-minded. An investigator has to turn their mind to the possibility that a man's innocent. They didn't do that. And that's the worst possible policing that you can ever take to an investigation, particularly one of this importance and this complexity. To my mind, it's, it's, it is a showpiece in some of the worst investigation in Australian history. The malicious prosecution of Bill Spedding and why he's been awarded $1.8 million. That story coming up. Now, if you knew something very wrong was happening in your workplace, maybe something corrupt or criminal or seriously incompetent or dangerous, what would you do? Who would you turn to for advice? Would you speak up? The Human Rights Law Centre is launching a legal service to support whistleblowers. I'm joined by Kieran Pender, senior lawyer with the centre, and also by Alicia, a whistleblower who spoke up about the mistreatment of young people in Tasmania's Ashley Youth Detention Centre. Alicia, for people outside Tasmania, remind us, when you were working at the Youth Detention Centre as a clinical practice consultant, what did you observe and what steps did you take? Well, uh, the mistreatment that I observed against the young people was fairly widespread and I suppose it ranged from verbal um, and emotional abuse through to uh, physical violence through to quite serious sexual abuse um, perpetrated both by staff um, against the detainees as well as enabled by staff between detainees. So there were many, many incidents that were extremely concerning that were taking place and I've always worked in, in pointy environments but this was something different entirely. I was blown away by the what was happening and the disclosures that I was receiving pretty soon after I started. The young people started making disclosures to me and other staff did as well once they trusted me about some of the things that had occurred or were occurring. And it, it kind of just got worse from there. And and, and so, so so when you became aware of the, these these issues, you, you made reports. You, you didn't sweep them under the carpet. Yeah. You, you made reports to your superiors and you tried to escalate. Yeah, I'm a mandatory reporter. So whilst I was um, devastated to be dealing with such, you know, serious misconduct so early at in my time, like I didn't think twice about making reports um, immediately through to the all the appropriate people. What was, I suppose, most shocking and still is, is the response that I got to those reports. What backlash did you face for doing this? On the ground in the centre, um, well, I started being bullied quite, uh, quite terribly. I was sexually harassed. I was being gaslit and uh, my concerns were being minimised horrendously. I was threatened quite brazenly um, about what would happen to me if I continued to report what was happening. I was told that what happens in the centre stays in the centre, that snitches get stitches and it just got worse and worse. And I was also reporting continuously what was happening to me and documenting it, saying this is escalating, I'm concerned about my own safety. But it actually, in the end, I was physically assaulted by a co-worker. 
So despite the pressure to keep quiet, you made the decision to keep making your voice heard within the system, to keep escalating complaints within the department, but then in desperation, you also decided to go public. You supplied information both to the media and to a politician who raised your concerns in Parliament. You also gave extensive evidence about the facility at the Commission of Inquiry into Tasmanian Government's response to child sexual abuse in institutional settings. And on Wednesday the 31st of August, the Commission of Inquiry is handing its final report to the State Governor and the Premier has committed to tabling the report in State Government within 10 parliamentary sitting days. This is an extraordinary outcome. But, but, but tell me, did you have legal advice and support when you made the decision to speak up and then to speak out publicly, to make the public disclosure? No, I was feeling really lost and alone at that point. Um, I spoke to the media and reached out to parliamentarians because there was literally nowhere else to go and I didn't feel like I had done all that I could to help ensure the safety of these kids. So it was out of sheer desperation really and it was terrifying to to do. I'm not someone that enjoys, you know, I've, I've never envisaged being in um, any kind of spotlight. So it was at the cost of my privacy and that sort of thing. It wasn't something I took lightly, but I felt like I didn't have any other choice because no one was responding appropriately and kids were and are at risk. Kieran Pender, can I bring you in here? You're from the the Human Rights Law Centre and your organisation is is opening up a a whistleblower legal service. Alicia's experience, how common is it and what sort of legal support do do whistleblowers often have or don't have? Uh, Alicia's story is a horrifying story, but sadly uh, all too common. Uh, The lot of the whistleblower in Australia is to face reprisal uh, too often Uh, We've also seen whistleblowers being prosecuted by the government for blowing the whistle on wrongdoing, being sued by their employer or facing backlash at work like Alicia did. Um, There's extensive evidence that shows that uh, a high proportion of whistleblowers face that workplace backlash. Uh, And we, to coincide with the launch of our whistleblower project, compiled uh, every whistleblowing case to go to judgment in Australia over 30 years since whistleblowing laws were first introduced and found just one successful case that led to a whistleblower receiving compensation and even then only a measly $5,000. And under the two primary whistleblowing laws in Australia, the, the Public Interest Disclosure Act for public sector workers at the federal level and the Corporations Act protections for private sector workers, Under those two laws, which have been operational now for over a decade in both cases, not a single successful case brought by a whistleblower under those two primary regimes. So the laws aren't working, and uh, on our view, that's because... Uh, there's a lack of support for whistleblowers. There's nowhere for people like Alicia to turn when they need support, they need advice and representation to navigate this process. And that's why we've launched the Whistleblowing Project. Now, now it's hard to sometimes work out exactly how many cases there have been because I imagine a lot of matters may be settled as well. So you'd only know about the finalised cases, I'm imagining. Uh, Of course, and we have all of those caveats around methodology in our report. Um, This is not the full picture, Um, But the picture it does provide is a fairly damning picture. So Australia has had whistleblowing laws since the early 1990s. Queensland was the first state to introduce laws after the Fitzgerald inquiry uh, into corruption uh, in police and in government. We're very fortunate that the Honourable Tony Fitzgerald uh, ACKC launched our project uh, recently. Um, We've had the laws ever since then. They proliferated at a state and federal level. We've got 
dozens of whistleblowing laws now across different jurisdictions and different sectors, but the evidence from the decided cases and the evidence anecdotally from what we hear from people and from empirical studies such as the work that Griffith University has done on the Whistling While They Work project, all of that says the whistleblowing regime in Australia is not working. And to us, if we look at overseas examples where whistleblowing laws are working, it's because civil society has backed in whistleblowers. It's provided them with the legal support and representation they need, either at a no-cost or low-cost level, so that the regimes actually work. We've got laws on paper. They're not perfect but they, they should be good enough uh, on paper, but they're just not translating into practical rights uh, in practice. And that's a real problem because whistleblowers make Australia a better place. I mean, imagine if Alicia hadn't spoke up about those incidents. Imagine if that hadn't been looked into by the Commission of Inquiry. So many of the major scandals of our time have been revealed because brave people spoke up. But if we treat whistleblowers like this, if they can't access the support they need, what don't we know because they're staying silent instead? Alicia, speaking of cases being settled, a few months ago you reached a settlement of your PTSD workers' compensation claim against the Tasmanian government. Now, now your your lawyer in that action, Angela Sedrinas, um, that was it with the personal personal injury action. But when it came to whistleblower issues, you received support from Kieran Pender and from the Human Rights Law Centre. Do you see a huge need for this kind of whistleblower legal service which is being launched? Absolutely. It's it's critically important and I, I consider myself so lucky to have, um, you know, have connected with Kieran and, uh, you know, whilst I've had brilliant legal advice from multiple people, Angela certainly included, it was really personally affirming to speak to someone who was so specialised in the area of whistleblowing because he just... Kieran knew what I was going through. I instantly felt much less alone in what I was dealing with. Um, and he was able to just, yeah, speak to the experience from a, a different perspective, which was, yeah, it was very comforting. And, and he was he played a really big role in um, ensuring that I was connected and supported by other people who had been through similar as well um, as providing me with that specialised legal support. Well, Kieran, so, so obviously the Human Rights Law Centre has, has supported people in the past and done a lot of very good advocacy work also in this space, especially um, with, with the the, um, the the whistleblowers facing criminal prosecutions, uh, Richard Boyle, uh, the, the, who blew the whistle on the ATO, and, and military lawyer David McBride over uh, war crimes uh, disclosures in Afghanistan. Uh, but but you, you now tell me tell me a little bit about this legal service, how how it will work. So as you say, we've got a proud history of advocating for stronger whistleblower protections and an end to the prosecution of whistleblowers. David McBride, Richard Boyle, you mentioned, we successfully contributed to the advocacy that led to the government dropping the case of Bernard Collieri, uh, the whistleblower who helped expose the wrongdoing Australia committed towards Timor-Leste in the 2000s. So we've long done this work and all of that advocacy, policy, law reform work will continue. Uh, But what is new about this is the provision of legal advice and representation and support to whistleblowers, building off really successful models in other jurisdictions. You know, really the learnings have been there. Uh, We've just become part of a global network, the Whistleblowing International Network, that's formed of all of these groups doing this same sort of thing around the world. Um, But in Australia, until now, that hasn't existed. And, and so that's meant that a whistleblower either need to get 
private legal assistance and they have to pay for that, uh, or they go to no-win, no-fee firms. But often that economic model doesn't work in whistleblowing because people need the advice and support before they speak up. And often there's no loss there for those sort of law firms to act uh, at that early stage. And so what I was seeing was people coming to me after they'd blown the whistle uh, at which point often it's too late because the law is so complex that it's so difficult to navigate. You know, federal judges have called out this scheme as being sort of basically indecipherable uh, and, and that's why we need legal support early so that people can follow those pathways and they're not on trial. They're not these prosecutions. Of course, the prosecution shouldn't be happening in the first place, um, but it's so important. So you want to provide legal advice to whistleblowers to make sure they don't fall foul of complicated legislation, which has a very narrow definition of a protected disclosure. Because when that happens, it's the whistleblower who's facing prosecution, not the people who have been exposed by that whistleblower. And the irony of all of this is that the law is in place and the laws are designed to protect and empower whistleblowers. They're just not working. It's as simple as that. The laws say you can speak up about wrongdoing. They say you can speak up internally and be protected from reprisal. You can speak up to oversight bodies like the Ombudsman, like ASIC. And as a last resort, most Australian whistleblowing laws allow you to go to the media or go to parliamentarians safely and lawfully. But walking that tightrope of the scheme is so tricky people fall foul. And that's exactly what we have in these cases of, of David McBride and Richard Boyle. They thought they were doing the right thing under these laws, and yet they now both find themselves on trial. Uh, David McBride in uh, November will face trial in relation to exposing Australia's alleged war crimes committed in Afghanistan, the first person on trial in relation to those war crimes being the whistleblower, not an alleged perpetrator. That is a symptom of a deeply broken scheme. Uh, We'll continue to call for law reform and changes to ensure that's not the case going forward, but we hope that by providing practical legal support to whistleblowers, we'll play a modest role in making Australia a more transparent place. Making Australia a more transparent place and making the path a little easier for people like former youth detention worker Alicia, a whistleblower who, after speaking out, went on to give extensive evidence to the Tasmanian Commission of Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse in Institutional Settings. And that commission's final report is being handed to the State Governor on the 31st of August and will be tabled in State Parliament within 10 parliamentary sitting days. Alicia and Kieran Pender, Senior Lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre, thank you both very much for speaking to The Law Report. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. A pleasure, Damien. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app. Also available via the ABC Listen app is a brilliant new podcast with Fran Kelly and Carly Williams. It's called The Voice Referendum Explained. And it really does cut through all the noise around the upcoming referendum and give you the information you need to make an informed vote. I do urge you to listen to it. Now, to the extraordinary case of Bill Spedding, who used to live in Kendall in New South Wales until he was hounded out of his community. The 72-year-old will receive $1.8 million in damages plus both interest and legal costs because he was the victim of a malicious prosecution. 
In upholding an earlier decision, three judges of the Supreme Court described what happened to the tradesmen as the worst case of false and concocted allegations by police ever reported in Australia. Sydney lawyer Peter O'Brien acts for Bill Spedding. Peter O'Brien, who is your client and, and what happened to him? So Bill Spedding was a uh, washing machine repairman, uh, as commonly described in the media, but he was a white goods repairman who repaired uh, a washing machine in the weeks prior to the disappearance of uh, the little boy in the spider suit, three-year-old William Tyrrell, who disappeared from a house in Kendall, New South Wales, in um, September of 2014. Uh, Because of his connection in that way, and largely also because the police had failed to properly consider the information that he'd given them. Uh, He was obviously spoken to because he'd been at the house. He gave them um, his whereabouts and details, which were largely uninvestigated. But in any event, he was seen as a person of interest and indeed, for a short time, a prime suspect in relation to that disappearance. He was subsequently charged with completely unrelated and entirely uh, bogus offences related to historical child sexual abuse. So who are the three police officers at the centre of this case and who are involved in the, you know, the, the, these bogus charges? Inspector Gary Jubelin, who was a supervising officer of the strike force connected with the investigation, Detective Sergeant Moynihan and Detective Senior Constable Brennan. So they decided that, that your client was a prime suspect and in order to put pressure on him, what strategies did they employ? What did they do? Well, one one of the strategies that they utilised, which was uh, keenly um, criticised by the courts now, was that they charged and arrested spending in relation to serious, uh, unrelated child, historical child sexual offences. And the idea with that was that they would have him bail refused, uh, place him in a prison cell in, in um, a particular jail, and they had recording devices um, designed to listen to, to conversation between him and his cellmate. So they knew or they ought to have known that, that there was absolutely no basis for these charges. Is that what this malicious prosecution finding is all about? Yes, it's, it's, it's about that. That's just one element of it. They, they had no reasonable or probable cause to suspect that he'd been involved in in that offence. In that respect, he should never have been arrested and he should never have been charged in relation to those offences. And they knew, they knew that because they had a series of um, documents and, and, and a lot of material that they didn't have. For example, they didn't have uh, one of the statements from one of the alleged victims who, who in fact, had said that it didn't occur or that there was no, uh, that she had no recollection of it ever, ever occurring. But most importantly, they had a judgment from the Family Court of Australia and a very experienced judge uh, from 1989 who said that the that the uh, allegations were entirely uh, false and they had been spearheaded and uh, and were a product of the, of coaching and program by the by uh, Spedding's former wife in the context of bitter and acrimonious family law court proceedings so she'd alleged that the children had been abused for the purpose of getting custody of those same children the family court determined that the abuse was uh, completely um, bollocks and so uh, uh, did not award uh, custody to the, to, the, to the wife for that reason. So the police knew or should have known that there was no basis for these charges, that these allegations were unfounded, yet they went ahead and they 
laid charges against this man, and and that was what what was their what was their intention here? What were they trying to achieve by doing this? Well, if there was an improper purpose in the arrest and the charging process, and they accepted that, or at least the state did uh, in relation to the to the appeal, they accepted that that the the improper purpose was to advance the investigation into the William Tyrrell disappearance. As he was a suspect in relation to the disappearance, they could put pressure on him, on his family, and try to elicit confessions from uh, jailhouse informant in the cells with uh, with spending at the time. And, and finally, these charges do come to trial, I think, in March 2018. What happens at that trial? The trial judge directed verdicts of acquittal and then awarded costs in uh, in Mr. Spedding's favour. So, which is very in, uncommon, right? Costs in criminal cases are very uncommon. And what it, what what the trial judge said is that the the trial the 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 charges should never have been brought. Mm. So that was the outcome of the criminal trial. So the criminal trial was held in 2018, but there was also a coronial inquest into William Tyrell's disappearance in 2019, which looked closely at Bill Spedding's alibi, which initially wasn't properly examined at all. Yes, he had, he had an alibi that wasn't properly tested uh, by police nor followed up. He offered he offered exactly what his movements were on the day to police and they failed to properly examine th- that alibi as it was uh, and that evidence. So there was a there was a, a, a trial that could have been followed that would have very quickly established his innocence in relation to the Tyrrell disappearance. There, there, were photos, there were photos from from a school event where he'd taken his grandchildren. I think there was a receipt from a, a for a coffee or some coffees um, that, that he'd bought as well. This was all at the time um, when the disappearance was supposed to have taken place. There was a significant amount of evidence and it was left to his own lawyers to uncover it and, and provide it to police and to the coroner, um, which later, during the coronial inquiry, made it obvious patently obvious that he was um, that he had nothing to do with the disappearance of the child. So at that point, you commenced on behalf of your client civil action for malicious prosecution and the judge ruled in favour of your client, I think back in December, the judge found that the charges were motivated by a predominantly improper purpose, namely to further the investigation into the disappearance of William Tyrrell. How did the judge calculate the damages? Can you walk me through what was the impact on your client of this malicious prosecution and, and I guess the the greater strategy to put him under pressure. Well, so it was, a, it was an innocent man portrayed as a child molester, but as the court found also um, portrayed not only as a pedophile, but also portrayed as potentially a murderer of a three-year-old child from uh, in, in the case of William Tyrrell. So the damages were calculated on the basis that he'd been portrayed this way in the media and variously... Um, not only in Australia, but th- throughout the world and internationally. So that was the first thing. The public opprobrium associated with that was, uh, as you can imagine, uh, very, very significant. And Mrs. Spedding gave, ev- gave evidence um, at the trial about the impact that it had on him. He was refused services in shops. He was refused to be able to get his um, blood taken medication in pharmacies and, and blood uh, pathology centres. He was beaten by people on the street. He was subjected to, to ridicule and abuse uh, by his neighbours. Um, there, there was a great deal of evidence uh, to say that it was a, a daily, almost ritual abuse coming his way because of who he was and how he'd been portrayed um, ultimately by police as a result of this arrest and this uh, attention uh, that had been brought to bear intentionally to put pressure on him to 
confess to something he'd never done. And of course, um, no charges have ever been laid for, the, for the, relating to the disappearance of, of the toddler, so it remains a, an unsolved crime. Your, your client receives this um, big award back in, I think, December last year. Uh, the state appealed, um, but the three judges of the Court of Appeal recently dismissed that appeal, and, and they were scathing about police. I've got to read out this 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 paragraph. Quote, the high-handed, self-serving, grandstanding undermining of the criminal justice system by the relevant police officers in arresting, charging, opposing bail and maintaining prosecution against Mr Spedding has no relevant comparator in the reported cases in New South Wales. One can only hope that its standing as the worst case is never repeated and is never superseded by conduct that is even worse, end quote. Boy, th- th- those words are extraordinary, aren't they? Yeah, so, so this, this was um, already a very scathing judgment of police by the trial judge, Justice Harrison, and the uh, Court of Appeal uh, took it even further and said in relation to the damages uh, portion, that the expert ex- excerpt that you've just uh, taken the listeners to, but um, really the, the the case was, as it was found, the very worst example. You can not think of a worse example of, of how to, your, your reputation might be trashed, your liberty taken and described as a pedophile and a murderer um, by various media outlets or as suspected as, of, of those things when, in, in fact, you're entirely, entirely innocent, where the charges... Uh, were never founded at all on a, on any reasonable basis, and where the suspicion against you really ought to have been investigated and put to bed much earlier than it was. Mm. Uh, Peter O'Brien, how difficult are these sorts of cases to succeed in court? Uh, th- these ca- these cases are extremely and notoriously difficult to prosecute and win. Uh, the first aspect of it is that you're usually dealing with someone who's got limited resources, such as Mrs. Spedding against the state with all their massive amount of resources, almost unlimited in comparison. And the second thing is that issues associated with malice and that element is really, really difficult to prove. You've got to prove that it it was the uh, sole ulterior or dominant ulterior motive was unconnected to the criminal justice system or to the justice system. And, and that's um, often difficult to prove. So it's incompetency or uh, recklessness or negligence is not enough. You've got to prove um, malice insofar as there was a, a disconnected and unrelated ulterior purpose. And that's what we're able to prove in this case, uh, largely by direct evidence. But uh, there's often not that sort of evidence in other matters. And malice has otherwise been taken out of the uh, out of the justice justice calendar. You don't see it in the criminal books because it was too hard to prove, and malice generally doesn't exist in other in other torts. So it is one of the most difficult torts to succeed in. So Peter O'Brien, you're a very experienced lawyer. Tell me, how do you reflect on this case? Well, the, the first problem with this case it it, it reflects very badly on the manner in which these particular police officers went about their investigation. They had this myopic, uh, blinkered view that they could do anything to a particular person, not follow leads in, that were obviously uh, leading to innocence, but rather just focus on guilt. Uh, an investigator has to be open-minded. An investigator, an investigator has to turn their mind to the possibility that a man's innocent. They didn't do that. And that's the worst possible policing that you can ever take to an investigation, particularly one of this importance and this uh, complexity.
So to my mind, it's, it's, it is a showpiece in some of the worst investigation in Australian history. And tell me, how, how's your client doing now? Well, he's obviously very relieved with the judgment on on appeal. That the state obviously have the right to appeal to the for, for well, to have seek leave to appeal to the High Court. Uh, they haven't indicated that intention at this stage, but he is uh, happy and feels vindicated with the judgment. There are still people who have uh, fo- followed the the papers and the media from early days, and he still regrettably uh, from time to time suffers from abuse uh, within within the public sphere, but. Um, he is relieved with the verdict and believes that justice has now been done for him at least. Peter O'Brien, Senior Solicitor with Sydney Law Firm, O'Brien Civil and Criminal Solicitors. Th- thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for on The Law Report. A big thank you to producer this week, Rachel Bongiorno, and also to audio producer, Tim Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. Listener.